Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are, and welcome to Smart Remarks and Howard Stakes. I'm Doug Howard. And I'm Today, Christian Smart. Yes, Christian, hi. Today, Hello. Christian and I are going to talk about Christian's upcoming webinar, the NFL and the math of the NFL. Well, hi, Christian. Long time no talk. How are you been? I'm doing well. How about you? Good, thank you. I, I see your, your state's kind of having a little upward swing in COVID. I hope you're okay with that. Um, well, the problem is people talk about a second wave starting. Part of the problem is with many states, uh, Tennessee is one of them, the first wave never really ended. It, it sort of reached a crest and then it sort of plateaued for a long time. So any hmm. upswing is starting from a relatively high plateau. So it ah. looks pretty bad, even though it's not um, exploding in exponential proportions like it was early in March. So um, hopefully things won't get too out of hand, but as people get out and do more and more things and push the envelope, it, it could get us back in that territory. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure hopeful that we don't do that. Um... You know, I, did, I, I have to apologize. I wasn't going to try to talk about the, the COVID events so much, but I did want to talk about you've got a, um, an upcoming webinar that talks about some of the elements in your book, and it's open to members of the, uh, the professional society that you and I are in, and also I believe it's open to the public. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Sure. It's, it's open to the public. It's um, It's all the funds go entirely to the professional organization to which we both belong, the International Cost Estimating and Analysis Association. And the webinar is basically a uh, summary of my book. It's not a expensive webinar. It's $25 for members and $50 for non-members. Um, by the time this is published, the webinar may already be um, online uh, at ICEA. You may be able to uh, access a recording of it. But uh, the, the webinar is about a variety of things about risk and about my upcoming book, kind of a 45 minute to an hour long summary of the key ideas, um, the enduring problems of cost and schedule growth, and that indicates significant risks in projects of all sizes and a lack of proper risk management. And uh, I also talk about why averages are not sufficient for project planning. I discuss the tendency to underestimate risk and how to fix it by calibrating to historical cost and schedule growth data. Mm -hmm. I talk about why diversification is often overrated. You know, diversification is a seminal advance of the 20th century in terms of risk management, especially for portfolio planning for your retirement. Right. But when you're looking at for projects, you, you can't just blindly apply the same concept. You need to be careful about that. Um, consequence is more important than likelihood. People want to be right. People have an innate need to be right. Mm -hmm. The consequence is really more important. If you think about the, the um, game, if you want to call it a game of Russian roulette, you have more <laughs> than 80% chance of winning, but when you lose, you lose your life. So right. um, your consequence is really more important, but people have a bias to want to be right. So that's uh, an innate tendency we have to kind of try to overcome. Um, and, and looking at the importance of consequence, we need to look at the tail risk, which when we look at a project risk, we tend to look at a 70% or an 80% confidence level, which means a level at which 
we're 80% sure the cost will not be higher than that amount. But what happens beyond that? You need to look at those kinds of things. There's also a tendency in organizations that are conducting multiple projects to try to conduct too many projects, which right. causes problems. And but when you when you uh, to plan for risk and to absorb risk, you need to have some reserves in place. But you need to be careful about that because it does um, set up sometimes except the wrong sorts of incentives. You have to be careful about the incentives and make sure people are incentivized mm -hmm. to try to to uh, spend as little as possible, but at the same time providing that cushion. So that requires some careful thought. Um, you know, you want to keep the project manager's hand on the cookie jar. Right. Um, right, right so, right. so there's things like, so we talk about all those kinds of issues. Um, and so it's a pretty high level overview of my book and uh, which is currently in the copy editing process. I just received Oh, great. Um, the edits for the inside flap and the, the back of the book today. Oh, great. And I uh, sent those back to Stephen and, and, um, and I've talked to the, uh, the copy editor who is a gentleman and uh, I guess this created his own business in Asheville, North Carolina and has uh, subcontracted with McGraw Hill to do the copy editing for the book. Mm. And um, I've sent him all the um, graphs and figures. So there's no equations in the book. But I'll illustrate things with uh, I've about 90 tables and figures to illustrate concepts and ideas. And so uh, one of the first things that he asked me for was all, all, all of my, all of those source files in Excel or PowerPoint. So so I sent him all, all of those. So yeah, that's a bundle of stuff, I bet. Yeah. 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 Well, interestingly, just for the masses, maybe we want to talk a little bit about the. Uh, when you say the 70% confidence interval, and I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with the normal distribution and can imagine the cumulative normal distribution being basically the unwrap, the, um, the sum total of the, the bell curve. And you can imagine at the 70% level that you've got a pretty good handle on things, but I believe what you point out in your book, what happens frequently and, and, much more often than people would like to believe is that there is a fat tail. There's the normal distribution. If you can imagine this towards its right or upper side is it does not mimic the left-hand side. It kind of, kind of tilts the whole arrangement kind of rotates a bit counterclockwise and you're left with a, what you call and mathematicians call a fat tail. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. Yes, and it's important to kind of uh, disentangle the, the two notions, which you kind of talked about. Um, there, there are two important notions there. One is skew, and um, you know more things can go wrong than can go right. There's a lower bound of zero for cost, mm -hmm. a lower bound of zero for schedule, um, but there's no upper bound theoretically. So, uh, and more things can go wrong than can than can go right. So things are skewed to the right, you know, the up upside for cost right. and, and schedule. So that's, that's skew. That's one part of it. The other part is the, the degree to which things can go wrong or go right. Like we said, with the normal distribution, the normal is not so normal. And so in my book, I actually don't really refer to it as uh, I only call it the normal. And, the, and, and just, just to say that really for when it comes to cost and schedule risk, it's not normal. Mm. Um, it, it doesn't really work that well. So I, I refer to it by the, as the Gaussian Right. Uh, Carl Gauss was the mathematician who uh, developed the formula for the normal distribution. He didn't actually just, was not the first person to actually discover it. But um, 
So actually we can't produce the Gaussian in the book because it is not normal. I'll mainly, mainly show examples with the, the normal or Gaussian distribution to just to show uh, this is kind of the way we, this is kind of our intuition. If you've taken statistics in college and even taken multiple classes, you're mostly familiar with the normal distribution, what's called the normal distribution. Right. And the normal distribution comes up in a lot of applications. It um, works well explaining variations in physical phenomena, um, heights of humans, longevity. So it works really well in uh, life insurance, for example. Um, but it doesn't work as well in casualty insurance mm. because of the degree that things can go wrong. You think about these uh, floods, earthquakes, uh, exactly hurricanes, yeah. damages, things like that. Interesting. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the webinar. I've signed up already, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about that. And uh, why don't you give, if, is there a link you could send, uh, you could read out to the the listenership that they could get to. Sure. Let me, uh, let me find that on LinkedIn. And I'll, I'll have our engineer put it up on the summary of the, of today's discussion so that they can find it. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, if you're on LinkedIn, you go to the CEO website or the CEO uh, has posted about it, but I can um, see where I can find it. Um, it's, um, if you go to the ICEA website, it's ICEAAonline.com forward slash QED forward slash. And you can find the, what are called the QED or the, um, just short for quo errato demonstratum, you know, thus it has been proved. Um, you'll find the link to my webinar, Solving for Project Risk Management, Understanding the Critical Role of Uncertainty in Project Management, which will take place on June 23rd, starting at noon Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Great. Okay, well, thank you for that, Christian. That's, um, that's something I've got marked on my calendar. I'm looking forward to it. I, uh, for those of you who haven't listened to a Christian Dr. Christian Smart uh, podcast, or I should say, um, webinar rather. You're you're in for a treat. He's uh, he's really quite good at that, as you can imagine. So um, you and I have been kind of knocking around some stuff with the NFL, and uh, we wanted to address that. I, as you know, I was doing some work trying to figure out. Well, <clears throat> if you're an owner, you know where do you put your dollars when it comes to the NFL players that you could buy. And so we, I did an analysis of wide receivers and then I did one on running backs and the wide receivers was pretty well correlated. I was getting stuff, I think in the 70% region, but when I moved over to running backs, which was just, just yesterday, I put up a post on LinkedIn or no, this morning rather did most of the work yesterday and the day before I discovered that if you tried to predict the value of a player based on his salary, you, you weren't getting, you weren't getting really high correlations. You're getting correlations in the neighborhood of mid fifties, low 60%. But then realizing that, <clears throat> excuse me, lots of people play fantasy football. I thought, well, what if, what if we took the total scoring points that the, um, the running backs had, it made that the 
as we say in mathematics, the objective function, the thing for which we are solving, and see how the, the players ranked up using that metric. And it turned out we got quite a bit better results, getting correlations of 90 plus over 97%. And I discovered you could predict the value of a running back with respect to the points based on their rushing yards, receiving yards, and touchdowns. And so in order to do that, uh, what, what's interesting too, and now this is, gets into the Bayesian discussion we'll have a little bit later, um, Christian, but, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm older than you, and I remember it used to be that running backs would run all the time and very seldom would they get re receptions. And, of course, as football's evolved, there are more and more of these backs that receive more and more yards. And, in fact, I think Christian McCaffrey – Caffrey had um, over a thousand yards receiving last year, in addition to a thousand yards running. So, became quite the dual threat. So, when I was talking to one of my guys about doing this analysis, he said, "You know what?" He says, "You got to make sure that the backs that you're looking at have some receiving yards, because what that means, and from a scoring standpoint, is that they're on the field in those downs in which." a pass is likely compared to the backs that don't have any receptions who they take off the field and they have fewer plays. And so when I did that, I basically took, as we say in math, we, we did a filter. We filtered out the, the running backs that didn't have any receiving yards. And I, we figured out that touchdowns might be important. So we filtered out those that didn't have any touchdowns and we ended up getting 55 players that we could estimate the, again, the, the point value in fantasy football. And it turned out that, the, that their values were based on rushing yards, receiving yards, and touchdowns. And uh, very high, P, very low p-values, uh, which is the, the chance that these, the probability that these effects came about due to chance. And <clears throat> using this equation, you can figure out what somebody is worth based on this, you know, based on these three parameters. And what's fascinating here, Christian, is that it gets back to you talking about the wide tails. There's a lot of ways to score points in fantasy football, just like there's lots of ways to make money in a market or with a product. And it turns out with as good as this prediction is, it still underestimates the value of Christian McCaffrey. It also <laughs> underestimates the value of James White. So, um, Interesting results there, and uh, I think you had a chance to take a look at it. Uh, it turned out that, just for an example, that Levin Fournette and Todd Gurley had nearly the same points, but they took much different ways to get there. Fournette had uh, 1,152 rushing yards and 522 receiving yards and three touchdowns, and so his his real his actual score was 183 points. So Todd Gurley was the guy that was closest to him at 188.4 points. Now Gurley had only about two thirds the yards, 857 rushing and less than half the receiving yards, 207, but he had 14 touchdowns. And it made for quite a difference in the way they got to the, the same kind of prediction. Um, Burnett was exceeded his prediction by quite a bit and Gurley was right on top of it. So um, this, this kind of analysis, and I, I think I'm going to move over to 
what I believe you call an ensemble analysis, Christian, when you use more than one equation, is that your, your, your term you like to use for it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, I think what I'd like to do in future analyses of, of points for fantasy football would be to take several equations and take several different cuts at the players by position and then see how they shake out. See if um, it, it, it's probably the case that McCaffrey, because he does everything well, would always be on the top and there may be the same case for James White. But since everybody's picking those players pretty early on, the, the question becomes, well, who becomes your bargain when you get deeper into the draft? And, and that becomes, when you get deeper into a fantasy draft, that becomes, if the players are taken off the board as they are in a lot of these drafts, that becomes a question of a Bayesian theorem, doesn't it, Christian? It's a Bayesian analysis. Maybe you could explain Bayesian analysis to the to the group here. What do you What are your thoughts about Bayesian analysis? Well, Bayesian analysis is, um, you know, so it 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 tends to fall in line with the way people really work to some extent and the way people really do things. So, I'm a big big fan of Bayesian analysis. It's named after a, a reverend who lived in the um, I think the 1700s and came up with this equation that looked at conditional probabilities, basically. Um, what is, you know, given that you know something, what is the probability that something else is true? And it's typically the case that whenever you do any kind of analysis or you, you know something about it. Um, so that this, this is a way to take into account all that sort of experience in, in a conditional probability format. So uh, I'm a big fan of Bayesian analysis because it, it, um, it, it really sort of mimics the, the way uh, life really works and, and uh, helps you to take into account everything that you know, not just a limited sample. And a lot of the work that you and I do, we have relatively small data sets. When we talk about small data sets, we're talking about anything from a, a few, you know, a handful of data points to a hundred data points. A hundred data points is not what uh, statisticians would consider a large sample. Right. Those are all relatively small samples. Most data sets we work with are, are fairly small like that. So, um, so that Bayesian analysis is also very good at helping you take you, take into account everything you know, which helps with, uh, you know, doing analysis on small data sets. Yeah, now I, I think the best example you have of a Bayesian, uh, real world Bayesian condition that some people have seen uh, broadly would be the let's make a deal Bayesian yes. analysis. Why don't you explain to the crowd what the, you know, how that plays in the let's make a deal game and explain the game for those that forgotten it. And then what happens when the game changes midstream? Yes. So this uh, is a good example of, of Bayesian uh, thinking. So for example, on the, the game show, let's make a deal whose original host was Monty Hall. So back in the seventies, um, you know, Monty Hall was the host of the show. Let's make a deal. And this is kind of a simplified version of, of his, uh, of one of his uh, contests, which was a contestant is shown three doors. Behind one door is a car. And then behind each of the other two doors is a goat. Um, you, you know, you want to win the car. So you want to, so you, you pick a door and Monty then proceeds to say, okay, I'm going to, 
open a door and show you a goat. And, and then he closes the door back. So, so you, so you pick door number three, for example, and then he opens door number two and there's a goat behind door number two. And he says, would you like to change your uh, selection? Would you like to change, choose, do you want to stick with door number three or should you, should you switch to door number one? Does it benefit you? Have, you know, have you gained anything? And, mm -hmm. um, and so the naive idea is like, well, I, you know, I've got a, um, I got a one in three choice, one in three chance of picking the right door before, and now I still have a one in three chance of picking the right door. Well, now you actually gain some information by seeing one of the doors where it's um, not a car. You're, you're, you're given a little bit more information and you, you can actually, you actually, uh, if you switch, you have a higher chance of getting it right because you're never going to be shown um, a door with the, you know, he's never gonna open the door and say, Oh, here's the car. He's going to open the door and, and show you a goat. So you actually increase your probability of winning by switching doors. If you don't change anything, your, your chance of winning is one third. If you, if you switch your, your probability of winning goes up. So, um, yeah. The, yeah, the way I always like to look at it and, and to amplify, to riff off of your thing is that your, your, your position there is that in the way the game's played, Monty with his two doors to your one out of the three, he's got a two thirds chance of winning at the start and you've got a one third chance of winning. So now all of a sudden Monty takes away one of the chances. And so now there's only two remaining options. And so if you pick, if you stay with your option, you're at this one third, you're at the one third probability that you started with, but the, the other option, the one, the remaining door, that becomes a 50-50 proposition for you because Monty's taken away the other third. That You were one-third against his two-thirds. He took away one-third. Now it's one-third versus one-third. So if you were to switch, you go from your one-third probability to a 50% probability. Yeah, and actually, yeah, so the the um, the, the probability that he – well, probably he picks a door given that um, they open door number – so let's say you pick door number three. Or say, say you pick door number one, okay? And then he shows, he opens door number three and shows you a goat. You know, the, there's the probability that um, he will open door number two versus door number three is 50-50, is right? Right. But if you do all the analysis, you look at Bayes' theorem, you actually um, you have a two-thirds chance of winning if you switch doors. Because you, you oh, double, that's right. yeah, right. right yes, right. you actually double your initial probability. So you go from a one-third chance of winning to a two-thirds chance of winning. You do the analysis and look at Bayes' theorem. So yeah, so it's it's definitely in your advantage to switch, and it's it's one it's one of those problems where it's kind of flummoxed a lot of people. Um, the famous mathematician Pyardish uh, didn't understand it at first. Um, well, I so I did stuff too there, so I, I'd forgotten that bit. So thank you for that. <laughs> Oh sure, and uh, and then it was a, it was actually the subject of a famous column in um, Parade Magazine. Ask Marilyn, are you you familiar with that? Yeah, I am. Marilyn Vosavant, you know, who's um, billed as the world's smartest person because she has the highest published IQ. Mm. Um, and uh, so she she actually answered it correctly. And then in her column, someone had posed it to her in her in her column. She answered it correctly. 
and then a lot of uh, math PhD sent her, you know, letters saying you're wrong, you know, and <laughs> it was actually, I would, had started graduate school a little bit after that time. And there was some debate in the math department about that problem too. And my advisor had, had gotten it right. Um, I initially, it took me a little while to figure out what was going on. I, I thought that there was no advantage. It took me a little while to understand it and figure it out. So it's, yes, yeah, not uncommon to, uh, have a hard time getting wrapping your head around it. That's a good example of why, you know, people are not hardwired to understand uncertainty. It takes some work, it takes some effort. Right. You are. Yeah. So, um, so what's interesting to me using this kind of analysis that I was talking about for the running backs is that you, you know, they were telling me, my, my, my guys that play this were telling me that the way these, these drafts go, if you're in a group of 10 people, they have what they, what they call a, um, I think they call it the snake selection where they if you're number one at the beginning you you start you you get a choice and they go from one to ten in, in an order that's maybe drawn by random numbers but then when you get to number 10 the guy that was number 10 gets the 11th pick so he gets to go twice in a row and it comes back to you so if you were number one you would be number 20 the second pass through so um and so on so that goes that way that way. So it'd be interesting to think of when you're doing, when you're picking your fantasy football team, uh, you, you've got a certain, this gets back to another concept that we've talked about in, in my, in my work about the, um, about market limits. This is one thing I'm starting to appreciate about fantasy football. I mean, in this post that I show, I said fantasy football, more closely resembles the real world in terms of being able to be rewarded for what you what you're doing right now rather than what you've done in the past that that's a kind of a a nice thought and what what's interesting to me is that in a in a market there's a, there are limits that are placed on on markets so for example in aerospace what's happening right now is the Airbus company uh, Airbus is the competitor to Lockheed Airbus is made the largest passenger jet in the world. It's the Airbus A380. And they were betting that this plane was worth 400 million bucks list price. And it turns out that's, you know, they were getting the price. You know, it's been discounted, of course, off the list price, but they get, they've made plenty of sales, or I should say they've made sales at that price, but they haven't made enough sales to make a profit. You know, importantly, what happened here was that turns out that there was a, there was and is a limit to how much the market can absorb. And they didn't bother to figure out what that limit was. And back to your earlier problems there, Christian, they, they also didn't realize that, that they would have cost this cost and schedule program, uh, cost and schedule issues that they did have. And they kind of multiplied and made it so that they didn't make revenue after they started their production for many, many years. And that, of course, knocks down their the net present value, what it is that they're making. So that that's a real world example here. So in back to fantasy football, you're limited to a certain budget, you know, some either real or make believe monies that you have that um, that you have to spend for your players. So I'm wondering if, as I'm going through this stuff, trying to figure out a, an, an algorithm for going through an entire team. You know, when, when do you spend your money and, and how do you spend it? And 
you make an algorithm that reacts to everybody in your draft pool instantly. It seems like that's actually quite a bit more complicated than it would look at at first blush, huh, Christian? Yeah, I would think so. I'd be interested to see if you could use this analysis to put a value on a player. And then as you go through the selection, you can see if the, if the player was undervalued, then you should pick that player, right? Right. If he's still available, if he's got the most remaining value for the dollars that you spend in that slot. And so I think you've got to, I forgot how many slots you got to pick. There's a, there's an algorithm for that too. You've got to pick one or two running backs and three or four receivers and a quarterback and a kicker and somebody on defense, I think. And, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to create a budget for yourself and then you have to work to that budget and, what you ought to do, I guess, would be to make a rank order for yourself where you would know the best person to select for your budget at every point in time. I think that would be the best way to go about that. Yes. You said you've done some research on receivers and, and, and you wanted to share that with us. Yes. So, you know, you had uh, talked to one of your LinkedIn posts about uh, speed and how important speed is mm -hmm. in terms of value. So um, I'm an Alabama football fan, you know, the University of Alabama. Right. Um, and so we, Alabama had a couple of receivers that were chosen in this year's draft. And one of the interesting things about these two players are that uh, both are very good. Um, one of them, Jerry Judy, was a Bolitnikoff Award winner mm -hmm. not this past year, but the year before when he was a sophomore. So I think both of these guys are juniors, you know, taking yeah. the early eligibility out of college to, to go to the NFL. Yeah, the Bolitnikoff um, uh, Award, for those who don't know, goes to the best receiver in college football, right, Christian? Is that right? Right, right. So, so Jerry Judy had, had, you know, widely been considered as the best uh, player in, in the, the best wide receiver in this position before going to the NFL Combine, uh, which is a way for players to – you know, work out and maybe make a, a better impression on, um, on scouts and on teams than they might otherwise, especially for players that go to small schools that are not as – could be overlooked. But both, both uh, Jerry Judy and, and Henry Ruggs, they both participated in the Combine. They were both in the top ten. Um, you know, one of the, the things that was widely regarded about uh, Judy is his um, – ability to catch the ball. And he has been noted, and I've noticed that he can, um, has very good hands. And, you know, so if the ball is anywhere near the perimeter of his ability to catch it, he'll, he'll reel it in, you know, maybe overthrown him by a little bit. He'll, mm -hmm. he's got big hands and reach up, kind of grab it, bring it down and, and tuck it in and secure, secure the catch. But when you looked at their combine, both were in the top 10, but, but Henry Ruggs, who I had, had noticed in the last few years had was, uh, actually faster than Jerry Duty, you know, in terms of his running speed. Mm -hmm. And and Ruggs uh, ranked first among uh, receivers in the combine 40-yard dash. He had an official 4.27. I think he had wow. even faster time. And he had a goal coming in. He wanted to break the record, which he was, I think the record is 4.23. So he wasn't too far off the record, but he didn't break it. But he had, a, I think, he had an unofficial time that was a little faster maybe than 4.27, but he – uh, he jumped the start starting gun. So it was actually a little biased in his favor probably, but, but he, he was the number one and, and Jerry Judy turned out was, was actually tied for ninth. So he was at the bottom end of the top 10. 
And um, as a result, when uh, I think part of this was the result of this um, on draft day, Henry Ruggs was taken as the 11th pick overall ahead of Jerry Judy. Wow. Judy was picked second in the draft among wide receivers and number 15. Both are uh, now very wealthy young men, but um, you know, the difference in speed there may have set Ruggs apart. There was, uh, I have you know, read some stats about Ruggs. You know, one of the things that, that uh, college uh, teams do, I'm sure the NFL does this too, but the players wear GPS receivers and they can uh, track how fast they go at any point in time. Right. And at one point, Ruggs was tracked going an incredible speed. It was, I think, almost 30 miles an hour for a brief yeah. burst of time. Wow. Um, incredibly fast. But um, so, yeah, so uh, Ruggs is very fast. And we'll see how that translates in the NFL because, you know, uh, just because you get drafted high in the NFL doesn't necessarily mean you'll um, do well long term. But it was kind of interesting looking at the other players who finished in the top 10 Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the combine, all of them were drafted. Uh, it ranged anywhere from um, Jefferson. Uh, I think his name's uh, Justin Jefferson, plays for LSU. He ranked eighth. He was the Blitnikoff Award winner this past year, mm-hmm. and he he uh, he was drafted 22nd. Uh, but all the others in the top 10 were taken in the second round or below. Um, you know, every, anywhere from um, – you know, the 11th round in the first round, 11th pick in the first round to the sixth round, the 21st pick. So, but they were all drafted. So uh, speed is very important for wide receivers. However, there were a few uh, wide receivers that were picked um, in the first round that, that did not uh, either comp- compete in the combine or they did not uh, finish in the top 10. Uh, notable example of that is C.D. Lamb, who played for Oklahoma, Mm-hmm. Projected 17th, but so there are some other factors that they look at, but but clearly speed is a very important, um, uh, you know, you know, um, metric when it comes to uh, wide receiver ability. Yeah, when I did this this study going back to um, a month ago, if you if you if any of the listeners want to um, pick this up, so today is as we record this, it's June. 18th. So a month ago, I did a thing on receivers talking about speed. And I, because somebody else had already po- pointed out that, that if you get somebody that's very young in the league, they, they're on their first contract. And the first contract is really dictated by the, the draft position that, in which they find themselves. So I, I picked receivers that were 28 years of age or older that had been in the league for six years. And I picked them that had all those that, you know, uh, just take, took all the receptions and then worked out a, the response for the receptions per game, their age and their speed in the 40-yard dash. And it turns out that if you took two players, each of which were 28, both of whom were averaging four receptions per game, that if you ran the 40 in 4.65, which is within the range of those, what those receivers are, you'd be worth 6 million bucks, but if you could run a four, four, a quarter second faster. So you're going from a four, six, five to a four, four, your value would go up from 6 million to 10 million. So you get another two thirds value for going a quarter second faster. 
And, and interestingly, you know, most people think they can't do it, but it, it turned out that um, in 1968, Rocky Blyer was playing for the Steelers after he got drafted out of, uh, let me think it was Notre Dame. And he went off to the Vietnam War and he had part of his foot blown off and he started working. He could still run and, and lift and work out. So he, he, he had a season where he was kind of on the, uh, well, in baseball would be the DL, but not, not ready to play list for the, the Steelers. And he came back into camp t two years later and he took his, four, took his 40 time from the 4.8 that he had when he started out down to 4.6. And so if you can, you know, if you can, if you as a receiver can drive your speed up, your, your time's down, you're, you're actually improving your, your value to everybody. And, you know, what they're discovering now is there's ways to do that. There, there, you know, there's some form techniques. You can, you can start to lift more heavily with your legs, doing a lot of squats. That's where the, uh, the drive for the 40 comes out is, is doing squats. It comes from your buttocks on down. And, and so they're discovering that there are ways to improve speed. But somebody like Rocky Blyer figured this out over 50 years ago. So this is, this is pretty interesting that, that somebody could do that. That's uh, typically considered, you know, A, he was damaged goods, damaged goods, and B, he's, you know, past his college years where a lot of guys hit their peak speed. He was kind of training like Usain Bolt and trying to get, he got faster as he hit his late 20s, which is what you can do if you keep your workload up. That's pretty interesting to me. Oh, yeah, neat. Yeah. So, um, be interesting to see in a um, draft pick regimen how you want to try to play the points. I guess we're going to have to try to, you know, if we're going to do the more of the fantasy stuff, I would have to try to do analysis of all the points available for somebody and for by position. I think certain positions don't, don't score as many points and see what the cost is per position. And then you could come up with it, an algorithm to actually game the system that would end up having some Bayesian elements to it. So. Right. Right. And so getting back to Bayes, I just realized what I didn't do for the let's make a deal thing. They, the way I, I should have thought of it, and this is the way that, you properly think about it is if you start out, you've got a one third chance of, of winning and Monty Hall has got a two thirds chance of winning. So what you really want is want Monty Hall's chance of winning. So if he takes away a door and you've got just the one door left, you've got Monty Hall's chance of winning, which is two thirds. So that's, that's the way to think of it. Yes. Right. Right. So that, that's a, that's a quick summary. So, uh, so that 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 helps that that helps my thinking there, and, and it's great to be able to clarify that. That's the great thing about mathematics; it helps to clarify thinking in a lot of regions that people are just kind of going with their gut. And um, so I, I've I see going with their gut as a as a problem that you see in your book with people trying to be optimistic. Oh, I'm going to be able to do this. Yeah, or I'm going to be able to do that. And the data may show that they can't do this or that and that they, they want to, they want to be able to mitigate, they should want to be able to mitigate the risk by not going forward. So I remember you talking about this 
mathematician who studied at MIT who had been an NFL player, and he kind of took a Bayesian approach to his, his position. And uh, he said, you know what? I want to have a PhD in mathematics. And I, in order to do that, I need to have a functioning brain. So, so tell us, Christian, what happened to this, this fine young gentleman? Why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, so he's an interesting guy. His name is John Urschel. He played football at Penn State. He's an offensive lineman. He's very passionate about football, loved, loved to play football growing up. And, you know, players have five years of eligibility. I think he used all five years of his, was redshirted as a freshman. So by the time he, he uh, finished school, finished his five years of eligibility, he was graduating not just with a bachelor's degree, but with a master's degree in mathematics. Wow. And, and he had published a peer-reviewed paper at that point as well. So uh, he was drafted by the Baltimore Ravens in the fifth uh, fifth round of the 2014 draft. And he played in uh, 14, 15, and 16. And uh, one of the things that happened to him in 16 was that he um, was in practice. He got a concussion. And I would imagine that concussions maybe not be as typical for offensive linemen just because of their position and their their you know how they uh, how they play. They're not getting hit in the head as much. But he got a concussion. And for two weeks, he couldn't do any mathematics. Wow. And, and that was very scary to him because he loved math. It was actually had, unbeknownst to the Ravens, he had started a PhD program at MIT. <laughs> MIT did not allow any, does not allow any part-time graduate students. But he had started a full-time uh, program at MIT and had worked out with them, I guess, um, um, you know, he was doing his stuff, a lot of his stuff online and um, living in Baltimore, I guess, going to Boston, I guess he could fly back and forth if he needed to, but he did a lot of work and, um, and was actually enrolled full-time in graduate school at MIT while he was playing football. Um, <laughs> so when he, when he recovered from his concussion and he started doing math again, he, he decided that he didn't want to take the risk. I mean, he, was, he loved football, loved playing football, but he decided that the risks long-term were not worth it for him, so he, he quit his football career. And he um, he's getting close to finishing his PhD. He now has um, he now has like six six uh, peer reviewed publications, and he's plans to graduate uh, next year in 2021. So he's getting close wow. to uh, to finishing. So he's uh, yeah he he may probably made it. So it's a, a risk if you think about from the player's choices. You know what kind of risk are you willing to take in your life to play football? Um, he was probably making pretty good money, probably making more money as a NFL player than he would as a mathematician. But he decided to um, long-term that the risks weren't worth it for him because he valued his ability to do mathematics more. So he, he quit. It is a very risky thing. It was from a personal perspective for a player to play football. Um, so another um, statistic for you. So here's a little trivia question. Mm -hmm. um, okay. If you think about Auburn university football, Right. Who who has the highest um, single season record for Auburn football in terms of rushing yards by running back? That would be Bo Jackson, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah, so what you would normally think is Bo Jackson, but it's actually not Bo Jackson. It's it's a, a young man named Trey Mason. Wow. And you probably don't know that name. He um, he actually has the fifth highest all time SEC single season rushing mark. He said it in 2013. 
1,816 yards. Oh. That year, he was also a Heisman finalist. He played two years in NFL, 2014-2015. Total managed to rack up 972 yards, which is not too far off an average NFL running back. But unfortunately, he was also having a lot of personal problems because of all the concussions he had suffered. And his mother was caught on record or on tapes that's saying that he has the mindset of a 10-year-old with all his multiple concussions. And so he's had some legal trouble. He didn't make it in the NFL PS. 2015 he did play a little bit in the cfl but i've not been able to find anything else about him since then so it's an unfortunate situation yeah bo jackson um his husband uh, winning year he had about he had 30 fewer rushing yards than trey mason did in uh, mm-hmm. in his best season but and they're actually very pretty similar um pretty similar statistics except trey mason scored six more touchdowns and had 90 more receiving yards as well Wow, that's um, yeah, and this another interesting uh, aspect of risk is. Wait, I just want to say one more thing about football. I mean, I sure, was sure. I, I had no aspirations to go to the NFL, but when I was in high school, I had a couple offers to play junior college football. Uh, I shouldn't say junior college; I said Division two football. I could have played at a couple of Northwestern schools. And um, back then, this is this was. Um, mid seventies, the, the issue that most of us were concerned about was the knees because people could get popped in the knee and you'd never get the mobility back. And I'd been concussed playing football a couple of times. Um, I got concussed in university when I was in boxing. I, I, I couldn't make it to class for a day. So when you told me that, you know, the, uh, the PhD student, couldn't make it to, to class for, couldn't do math for two weeks. I mean, I was out for a, a day and it felt terrible. So yeah, that must've been a heck of a concussion. So it's interesting how our perceptions of risk changes because as what I'm getting at is that 50 years ago, the, the perceived risk in football was not being able to walk properly again. And through advances in orthopedic surgery, we figured out how to, the, the world has figured out how to do that pretty well, but, there's really no way to repair a brain if it's been hit repeatedly. And I, I think that's what, uh, that's what we're seeing here now is a lot of football players are going to stop really so that they can still keep, keep that function going. Yes. Yes. So, sorry to intercept that little bit there. Pardon the football pun, but you were moving on to something else there, right? So well, I was going to talk a little bit about speaking of Bo Jackson about, you know, um, when, when you're a, a, an athlete like that, you know, Bo, Bo Jackson was a great athlete mm-hmm. and you have, he had, uh, he was actually a, a triple threat athlete. Uh, you hear about dual threats in terms of dual sports, but he had three sports. He excelled at. He was a track and field athlete, a great baseball player and a great football player. And right. he decided not to pursue the track and field. He did um, compete in college some, but he decided not to pursue it just because it, it, Apparently, uh, the, the practice for track and field is incredibly rigorous, even more so than football or baseball. And, um, and so it, it was just too time-consuming. So he dropped tr- track and field. He still played baseball. He didn't really um, – he, he didn't play as much baseball as he did football. Um, but he, he did uh, play baseball, and he was actually uh, – did not want to pursue football coming out of college. He wanted to pursue baseball, and he was the um, – 
the, the first the first overall pick uh, in in the baseball draft. Wow. And 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 then um, yeah. So and he was also the first pick in the NFL draft too. Um, he <laughs> wow. was the first pick in both drafts. He, he decided not to go with uh, football. He he signed a deal um, and he did not want to play with the um, the team that drafted him. I think it was the um, I can't remember what team it was that drafted me. He wanted to play with that team. So he signed a deal with Kansas City for um, for seven seven and a half million dollars, seven point six million dollars over five years. And um, that, that's what that's what he was um, initially offered in the NFL draft, but he wound up playing baseball for a good bit less, so like a million dollars over three years. But then he uh, the Raiders the next year, he didn't play baseball and uh, play football that year, but the Raiders in 87, they drafted him again. Mm. And, um, and they, they said, we would like you to play football. We understand you're doing this baseball thing. We'd like you to play football and you can play the full baseball season. But when baseball's done, you come over and you play the, the rest of the football season with us. Wow. And they gave him over a million dollars a year for five years, a $7.4 million contract for five years. And so, so he did that. Um, what was interesting was there was another football player who was relatively well-known at the time who didn't play in the NFL very long named Brian Bosworth. Right. Bosworth was a little bit notorious in the, in the mid eighties for his hairstyles. He had kind of a Mohawk type hairstyle and right. he was banned from playing in his team's bowl game. He played for the University of Oklahoma. Uh, he was banned for uh, testing positive for steroids. Right, I remember that. And that was when, I guess, steroids had first become illegal. Uh, he was the, when the uh, Buckus Award for top linebacker in college was first given out, he won it the first two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he eventually wound up in the NFL. Um, he, he told several teams he didn't want to play for them that he thought were that would have have high draft picks but he eventually signed a deal with the clc hawks it was a, a record rookie contract at that time it was a 10-year deal for 11 million dollars one of the funny things about him was he trash talked john elway before his team's <laughs> game against the broncos wow. and then um 10, 10 000, so then there were before that uh, game uh 10, 000 broncos fans went out and bought these t-shirts at $15 each. And they, they read, you know, his name was Bosworth, which was B-O-S-W-O-R-T-H, but he, his nickname was the Boz, B-O-Z. Mm-hmm. So the t-shirt read, what's a Boz, B-O-Z, worth? What's a Boz worth? Uh-huh. Question mark. And the answer was nothing. <laughs> and so it, it turned out that uh, Bosworth's company uh, made those t-shirts. So, he profited from the, the Broncos fans wanting to get back at him for insulting Elway. So oh, it was pretty funny, but he, uh, he retired after two seasons because he had bad, bad shoulders. The team doctor said that he was 25, he was a 25 year old with the shoulders of a 60 year old. Oh, um, he had, uh, he had an insurance contract with Lloyd's of London. And so he tried to, um, um, make a claim on that because he said, I've, I've been injured playing football and I, you know, signed this insurance contract for you to pay me if, and they said, well, no, this is a degenerative arthritis. That's not covered under your contract. And he said, and his claim was that it was from injury he experienced playing in the NFL. And eventually he won a $7 million settlement from Lloyd's of London. 
wow. he then went on to an acting career. And if you've seen any of the Dr. Pepper commercials that are aired um, during football games, he plays the sheriff in the most recent uh, Dr. <laughs> Pepper commercials. But um, the one thing that he, or his connection with, with Bo Jackson was he um, thought Bo Jackson was crazy to play football if he could also play baseball. And it turned out that that was actually probably the right thing because in January of 91, Bo Jackson dislocated his hip, you know, following a, a tackle. Right. And he tried to play, so his, his football career was over. He tried to come back and play baseball, but he, you know, ran with a pronounced limp and he played for a couple more years and then retired. So it really kind of ruined his career. He probably could have had an extremely long baseball oh, career. Yeah. He's an yeah, extraordinary I, athlete. I don't know if you remember his wall run. You know, he was running trying to catch a ball in the outfield and he was getting close well, to the, the yeah, fence right. and he, he, he leapt up, caught the ball and then he ran along the side of the wall for like three steps. Yeah. He looked and, like Superman and, doing that. It was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. It's amazing kind of his athletics, but um, so you know, he definitely took that, a risk there that really didn't yeah. pay off in the long run. Anyway. I was going to say that, I'm sorry. There's another thing that he did too, where, I mean, if you watch and for those of our younger listeners, I mean, it's worth, you know, several minutes of your time to go off and look at Bo Jackson highlights. I mean, not only did he run up the wall, like Christian said, there's another time or two that he was in deep center field and he threw it all the way from, I mean, 350 feet or more from center field on a rope to uh, home plate, gunning down a runner. Um, there's the uh, famous tunnel run. Remember the tunnel run that he had on, on yep. Monday night football? He, he did a really long run. And he was going so fast that he couldn't stop. So he just kept running off the field and into the tunnel. And yes, uh, yes. it was amazing. And then getting back to Brian Bosworth, I mean, famously, Bosworth was, you know, trash talking Bo Jackson before he played him. And then Bo ran right over Brian Bosworth in a football game. And that was in, in its in its year. That was one of the most famous plays in sports. So. And do you remember what uh, Bo? You remember what uh, Bo said to him? Uh, so Bo ran over him, and then Bo helped him pick him up off the ground after he. I didn't know that. Drum was done. And you remember what you remember what Bo said to him? No, uh, uh-uh. what he said next next time buy a bus ticket because <laughs> he got run over by the Bo bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I really missed him. You know when he got his hip thing, it was just really a, a huge loss to all of sports because he was so. So gifted. In fact, um, he was on a, um, there was a clip of him just recently where he was reflecting back on his career and he was talking about the going to um, do it a time for the, the NFL combine. And I think he was, I think he was still running track. He was going off to track practice and somebody wanted to get a time that they could show the NFL. And, um, they kept pestering him about it. He wanted to go to track practice. And uh, he said he, he ran it. I think it was something in the order. I think that if handheld, it was under four seconds, you know, because the handheld timing, you have to react to the, to the runner moving. And, and he did the same thing. He said he, he ran and he didn't want to go, go back to the football field. He wanted to go off to track practice. So he ran off the field into the tunnel and they never saw him again. So uh, he had a flair for the, the great exits. And then of course, back in baseball, when he'd uh, strike out, 
he, I remember he was one of the first guys who took a bat over his knee and just broke it like it was a toothpick. That was crazy. I'd never seen anybody do that. It's like how, how strong do your leg muscles have to be to be able to do that? I think he did it behind his head too one time, which basically he's braced his braced neck. the bat around his neck and broke it around his neck. So Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly gifted athletes. Incredible. Kids don't try this at home. So uh you know, it's amazing. So uh yeah, that's uh, some interesting stuff there. So but now you have some players that have are going that route like Kyler Murray. You know, he was drafted in the first round. Um, decided to go in football and was drafted. Mm -hmm. I think he was taking the first pick last year. Um, now he's making, I mean, he's, you know, his first round, first overall pick. I mean, it's over like a, like a $30 million contract or more. Wow, so he's probably that. never going to have to really worry about money anymore. But I mean, he was also could have made millions of dollars playing baseball too. Uh, and had a, had a multi-million dollar offer uh, to play baseball. So we'll see how it works out for him. Hopefully, Hopefully he'll stay healthy and, and won't have the same issues that Bo Jackson did. But uh, his life expectancy in terms of his, or I guess, career life expectancy playing football is probably a lot shorter than it is playing baseball. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the average running back, you know, we started with this, the average running back's career is less than, I think it's two years. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen figures like two or three years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very short because too many injuries pile up over time. I think the top of the top 10 rushers, there, there wasn't anybody that was over 25 or 26 last year. Might have yeah, been Derek, one I think Adrian Peterson had a pretty good year, but I think the top 10 was all, all 26 or under, you know? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Derek Henry is probably right around 25 or 26. He was the leading rusher last year. Yeah. Um, and, um, um, Mark Ingram, who won a Heisman Trophy in 2009 with Alabama, he's still playing and he's still playing pretty well. He's been he's been in the NFL since I think 2010, so he's been playing over 10 years, so he's over 30. But I think he had close to a thousand yards last year playing with the Ravens. Oh yeah, he yeah, was yeah. A, over, a little bit overshadowed because he played in the same team as Lamar Jackson, who I think led the team in rushing. <laughs> Oh yeah, Lamar Jackson was he looked like a boy among men sometimes last year. It was unbelievable his dominance. It was uh, really really quite spectacular. So I I was very impressed by him. I thought he was doing things that I didn't know quarterbacks could do. So yeah, he it's it's kind of interesting. He um was a little bit underrated, you know, in the draft. He was picked towards the bottom of the first round when he was drafted, even though he had won the Heisman Trophy the year before. Oh, yeah. And um, hard to understand why that happened. I mean, I guess everybody would like to go back and have that as a, as a new pick, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, because um, you think of all the players that have been picked, you know, all the Heisman Trophy winners have picked in the top, top five, top ones. I mean, I mean, he's probably just that one year, he's probably done, more than Johnny Manziel and oh yeah, a couple other Heisman trophies, trophy winners combined. Yeah, so that's interesting thing about the Heisman. It, uh, it should be an indicator for success. And I mean, it, I mean, there's a lot of people that did massively well after winning the Heisman, but not all of them. It's that's kind of interesting to me. You'd think it'd be a real solid predictor, but you know, as you say, Manziel, Johnny Football, right? Right, Johnny Football. He was a real bust. Um, and very few starts NFL. I mean, um, 
even players like Marcus Mariota, he's had a fairly mediocre career and right. uh, didn't get re-signed by his initial team, the Tennessee Titans. Jameis Winston has had uh, some ups and downs, but he's not he didn't get re-signed by the Buccaneers who drafted him in 2013. So, yeah, Derrick Henry's kind of now coming into his own. He's got a little bit of a slow start in the NFL, but um, he's a very durable player. Very tough individual. So um, yeah, a lot of a lot of Heisman Trophy winners have not had success in NFL, and almost to the extent that you kind of wonder because they tend to get drafted very high. You almost wonder how hard do NFL uh, owners and managers have to work to make to make a living, right? Because it's not like there's oh, yeah. some built-in fan base, and it looks like they make some some bad decisions in, in terms of uh, drafting players sometimes. Yeah, it really does look that way, and. Um you're kind of left wondering, especially when I, I can't get the, the salaries to match up with the performance. It would seem like it would seem as if the, the correlations ought to be higher across the board for, you know, being able to predict somebody's production versus their salary, especially if they've been in the league for a few years that, you know, if we, if we were to take that, that factor into account, I, I guess I'm going to play a little bit more with quarterbacks and see if the quarterbacks match you know their salaries right. match better than the running backs the running backs may be penalized because of the same thing that one of my readers pointed out on my linkedin file which was that you know i did my first analysis on wide receivers and found out that the wide receiving core was heavily biased towards the round in which they were picked and this this gentleman pointed out that well the the interesting thing there is that most players are locked into a four-year contract, the first, the first contract. And um, yes, it's very structured. Yeah. There's a certain, certain, certain salary that they, there's some wiggle room, but there's certain salary levels that they get based on where they're drafted. So from get getting back to the Abazian analysis, if you're a, you know, a, a running back and you're lining running into 280 pound defensive ends, you'd expect your life expectancy to, in the league to be short. And it is, but if you're a wide receiver, you're getting hit by cornerbacks that weigh two thirds as much. Yeah, you're going to have a longer career. Yes. And so, you know, where, you know, from a, a um, predictive point of view, if you're if you're a football player and you you're vacillating between, well, for if you're back to the Bo Jackson thing, if you're a, a football or a baseball player, if you're vacillating on which career is going to be longer, well, that's a that's probably a pretty easy observation. Of course, then it gets back to what you want. But then, if you're a a football player that could play wide receiver or be running or be a running back, and your sole goal was to stay in the league, you'd say, "Well, you know, I think it's a pretty good choice to stay in there as a wide receiver." You know? Yes. Yes. So. Uh, that's um that's a consideration so um so yeah so um i'm i anxiously looking forward to to this uh this year's season i hope that it gets pulled off as you know as we've yes. said here we're we're looking forward we don't know if we're going to have a, a full season a partial season any season at all but um you know, it's July and, or almost July and it's about time for camp to start. So. Yeah. I mean, there, there have been reports. So, I mean, college players are already back at their um, practice 
And um, at least five members of the Alabama football team have tested positive for COVID. Some members of the Auburn football team have tested positive. So I don't know how well it's going to work. You know, sporting events are considered a high risk activity for if you have fans in the stands because of all the um, yelling and, you know, um, right. Apparently you, when, when you yell and you talk louder, there's more of that, you know, more respiratory droplets that right. move around. So more like, more like the chance. So yeah, I don't know how it's going to play out and I hope, hopefully it does. Hopefully it comes about, but uh, I've also heard that I think Ezekiel Elliott um, tested positive for COVID. I don't know if that was something due to his training activities or what, but. Yeah, I saw that too. That's, that's distressing. You know, interestingly, it seems like baseball ought to be the one sport where you could have distancing for just about, for most of the game, you could have distancing. Um, yeah. Of course, you got the catcher, batter, and umpire relatively close in the back, but the, uh, I mean, the catcher could add a, a facial mask to his catcher's mask, and the umpire could add one, and then it seems like you would have, I mean, they've, they've been playing baseball in Korea now, professional baseball, live professional baseball for several weeks to a month now. And I haven't heard too much of, of uh, any kind of information about a breakout of COVID from baseball. You've seen it in Korea from nightclubs, but not in baseball. So it'd be interesting to see the, the data from that about what happens in a sport with a sport in which the athletes are spaced apart. We also have right now we've got professional golf going on. And so far that seems to be working out. Okay. As long as there's not any fans and they're talking about getting pro tennis back on board. In fact, Christian, you, you play tennis recreationally and, and you've, you've been out a few times since the, uh, since the COVID started. Is that right? Yeah. I've won. You've done once. Yeah. And uh, I play with a men's group. Uh, we meet uh, Saturday or Saturday mornings and some, you know, Sunday mornings too, but it's a group of four to 12 guys, typically between four and eight typically play doubles. So it's either four or eight, sometimes 12. Um, they never stopped meeting. Um, I, 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 when things kind of locked down, I quit going for a while. Uh, last Saturday I went for the first time, but I had read that outdoor tennis with, with a small group was a very low risk activity. So I felt pretty comfortable with it. And, the group that I play with, they never really stopped. And I was talking to the guy that organizes it uh-huh. and he had talked to um, a physician who works um, with doctors without borders. So he, you know, worked o- overseas, you know, with, uh, you know, during epidemics, you know, like Ebola and things like that. And, and he, he said that he thought that, that tennis was very low risk, that there was very small chance. So that was one reason why he never stopped organizing it. So, um, so yeah, I feel pretty comfortable with that because it's not a very large group. Um, I'm around <laughs> at most eight people at any one time and relatively sure. close to about four. I take hand sanitizer, um, sanitize when I'm done, and then I go home immediately, take a shower, and, you know, so anything, you know, that was any kind of residue that was on me, supposedly, you know, should be washed off by then. So, but apparently that's not a big way that the d- disease is transmitted. So um, it's really through the respiratory. So, um, and the indoors worse than outdoor. So. Yeah. I think the, the three main factors that I've heard for transmission are um, space, distance, and time. Right. 
you're close to somebody or if you're in a tightly packed area, how long you're exposed to somebody. So if you're playing tennis outdoors, there's no space restrictions. Um, right. The distance is typically far away and the time that you would spend within arm's length of somebody, it would typically be very short. So that, that should be a, a good way to prevent it. Well, I, I haven't heard too much lately. Maybe we, you and I ought to get back into this. I, I tried to make a, a pass at how vitamin D would work in the COVID, in COVID studies. And, and you recall early on, I did a study where I looked at COVID as a function of population density and uh, GDP per capita, which turned out to transmit the disease because that added to the motility of the virus and cases and population. And then I, I, I tried weeks later to add vitamin D levels to that. And, and the problem that I discovered was that vitamin D levels, even within a single country, are, are kind of all over the map. So I didn't get any – I couldn't discover the correlation between vitamin D and, and – um, and being able to ward off the infection. So maybe because, maybe because there's um, so many other ways to get it or so many other ways to avoid it. There's, there's so many factors at, at play there. So maybe that's something we can consider next time. So, yes. So Christian, I've um, really enjoyed talking to you again. Um, it's always all. good talking to you, Doug. Yeah. Um, thanks for the uh, discussion on Bayes. I, I, I finally saw the air of my ways after you told me about that. So I, apologies to the group there that I had that momentary lapse of reason, but I see the air of my ways now. Everybody should look forward again to your uh, webinar. Tell us once more when and where and the, uh, the, the, um, the call site, the, the, the um, website that they can go to find out about it, please. Yes. So it's, uh, June 23rd at noon Eastern time. And the website is ICEA, I-C-E-A-A online.com forward slash Q-E-D. Okay. And then they'll look for Dr. Smart. Yep. All right, Christian. Well, thanks so much for your time and I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you next time. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Smart Remarks, Howard States, is brought to you by Me, Inc., the discoverers of and world leader in multidimensional economics. Please visit our website at www.meevaluators.com. You can address your questions to the show at info at meevaluators.com. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash M-E-E-L-L-C. You can follow us on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash meevaluators. On Twitter at at me4d. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at at Douglas underscore Howard. <laughs>